The Talking Point with Kathy Mosasana. Weekdays, 9 a.m. till midday. It is uh, 7 after 11 o'clock. Welcome to the third and final hour of The Talking Point. Uh, I'm Kathy Mosasana with you as always um, until midday, at least until I let you go for the book reading later on in this hour. Uh, we're going to be focusing on the role of uh, public-private partnerships um, for this aspect of our conversation. And really, um, you know, <laughs> October has been themed a social development month, which was really a concept of of working together to build caring and sustainable communities. Um, to join us in this conversation, we're joined by a Professor Patrick Bond, who's a distinguished professor of sociology at the University of Johannesburg. Professor Bond, good morning. Thanks very much for having me, Kathy. Wonderful to be with you and the listeners. It really is always a pleasure speaking to you, Professor Bond. Nolene Hreiling is Impact Catalyst Head of Department at the Social Development Department and Communications. Um, Nolene, good morning. Good morning to you and good morning, listeners. Thank you for your time as well, Nolene. Professor Bond, let's begin with this issue of public-private partnerships. We've heard a lot of that in this country in particular over the last couple of years. I think we've had some incredible challenges, um, top among them being the issue of electricity supply, needing to have stable electricity supply that really seems to have triggered, at least on, on a broad scale, the coming together of not of government and, of course, of private players. Under COVID-19, that took on a different role, and, and we saw just what can happen um, when it comes to public-private partnerships and how efficient they can be. That seems to have been continued. Um, and we now seem to have all of these different committees um, that have been established that are uh, geared towards public-private partnerships and helping to solve the country's problem. On the face of it, one looks at it and thinks, Oh, well, this is great. You know, the country's best minds are getting together, uh, government and the private sector getting together to help solve the problem. I wonder just your initial impressions of what we have seen out of um, these different committees, out of these different efforts. Are these all moves in the right direction? Uh, in my view, Kathy, they're not. So I'm glad we can have a wonderful debate. The question is whether over at least 25 years since uh, the end of apartheid, uh, the PPP record uh, is a partnership that serves the public interest or if it's public-private plundering. And if it's the plundering, which I'm arguing it is nearly all the time, um, then shouldn't we do what our students taught us? Uh, you remember the fees must fall in 2015. Instead of so much outsourcing of so many things from a state that is falling apart partly you know, as a result of corruption and all the rest of it, but it's also falling apart because it's um, hollowed out and it has given too many of its functions to the private sector. If I could start by you know, putting to you and your listeners and uh, my colleague on the panel, the uh, South African state is fairly corrupt, yes. And that has been one of the problems. We saw that with especially ESCOM and Transnet with the Guptas, with uh, in ESCOM, this terrible case of Hitachi bribing our ruling party 
through Chancellor House, the single biggest act of corruption, although for some weird reason, I don't know, <laughs> the Judge Zondo gave it a, a, you know, a miss. But if you look at the record, Transparency International, it says out of 180 countries, South Africa is actually, and I hear we're talking bureaucrats and politicians, 72nd uh, least uh, corrupt, so 108th most corrupt. So in the, let's say, top half of uh, clean governments internationally, it may surprise your, your listeners. But if we look at our corporates, our private sector, when PwC does its biannual uh, economic crime and fraud surveys, you can see it on their website, PwC, then we find that we have a very different situation. Our corporates, and it's Santon and Schlange, it's uh, uh, Rosebank, Midrand, it's, uh, it's Stellenbosch, it's Central Cape Town. Those are very dangerous places. Those rank through the 2010s, number one in corruption. According to PwC, I, I believe PwC on this because it's a very corrupt company. <laughs> they wrecked our SAA, for example, and plenty of other things. So uh, Bill Gates is suing them for a billion dollars for their corruption. It takes one to know one. So I trust PwC to tell us who's <laughs> oh, corrupt. Oh, Professor so, Bond. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I love how you're just, you're just throwing it all in there. <laughs> All right, oh, sorry. Let me, uh, let, let, let me uh, give you a chance to go go ahead. Yeah. Well, I, I can go into the record from the late 90s where, you know, telecom, where parts of SAA uh, were privatized. We've talked about commercialization, corporatization. I've just done a big survey with my colleague, Greg Raters, who's head of the School of Government at UWC. And we're just appalled by the public private plundering. And don't take it from me, the Treasury has a procurement office. And when they have the PPPs um, that you can measure through procurement, their estimate is 35 to 40 percent overcharging by these private sector partners. So I think we can call them pilferers or even worse plunderers. The, the record shows PPPs are just not working. We really need, as our students taught, taught us back in 2015, to insource these functions. Do you remember the fight over uh, free uh, education was also to get the, the lowest paid workers in our universities like UJ, like the cleaners or the, um, you know, the security staff, the gardeners to be brought in and they were getting a thousand rand a month only, you know, I mean, it was a pathetic situation. And so overnight, because of the insourcing, their, their salaries tripled. And I can tell you, I mean, the services were much better because we weren't relying on these ripoff uh, casual worker outsourcing systems. Does that make sense? In other words, PPPs are not partnerships. They're opportunities for plundering. When when we look at again the 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 efficiency and 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 how we sort of rate what we can actually consider a public-private partnership. And it was something that came up in the open line, Professor Bond, with um, one of our listeners who held a similar view to, 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 what, to what you do. Um, often when we talk about private sector, we're thinking about these big corporates and in some instances multinationals that are operating in this country that have a big say because those are really the guys that are sitting at the table, right? Um, when it comes to solving problems, let's say in the healthcare sector, you have business leadership South Africa, you have business unity South Africa, etc., etc. You can list them them all. So it's really at that high level. And then when it comes down to procurement and the the problems that that come out of our procurement and how it takes place is that it's not necessarily always the big monopolies or multinationals that are benefiting from the procurement but it's 
you know, the the the, the, the small business or the medium enterprise. Um, or the person who calls himself an entrepreneur, set up a business and suddenly, you know, runs into a contract worth millions, but has not actually shown that, the, that they have the capability or the expertise to, to, to fulfill that, that particular job. Do we need to be making a distinction between what and who we consider as um, private business? Absolutely. I, I'm so glad you've raised it because, Kathy, um, in my line of work, uh, teaching uh, at university, one of the required readings, I hope everybody will read this, is Frantz Fanon's book, The Wretched of the Earth. And there's a chapter, Pitfalls of National Consciousness, and it goes quite a long way to explain why we've had a problem with black economic empowerment because of the conditions under which uh, a, a new class had to be created. You remember Tabo Mbeki saying we need to have a black bourgeoisie and, and you had various of his colleagues saying I didn't fight the struggle to be poor and, and, and it's right to be filthy rich. That was our former deputy president. Um, now these kinds of sentiments reflect that the white corporate scene has been monopolized. South Africa is one of the worst cases in the world of having a, a very tight, little monopolized, oligopolized uh, industry in, in every different sector, right? And, and we, we could look at uh, ways in which black empowerment failed initially by uh, especially trying to get borrowers to buy shares. And the shares would always go up in price. Interest rates would be low. Well, that changed in mid-1998. Everything crashed. Even President Ramaphosa, the leader of this field, he effectively went bankrupt in that uh, awful uh, winter of 1998 because the stock market uh, went down about 40% and the interest rates went up. Your listeners with gray hair may remember they got lots of gray hair that month in August of 1998 by 8%. So all those deals fell apart. And the second wave of B was to force white companies to give some share, like mining houses, 26% to blacks, again, often on a debt system. Now, these are the sorts of, let's say, um, band-aid structures, uh, systems that uh, didn't really solve what Fanon described as the overall problem of a structure, white settler colonial capital here in South Africa or Zimbabwe or Kenya. Um, and then in the um, rest of uh, the continent, it was multinational corporates that had such big control mechanisms over, you know, export of raw materials, cash crops, minerals, and so forth. That's the structural problem that leads to exactly what you've said, that, that we've got some very inexperienced, a lack of a real productive capitalist class from the black community because of apartheid suppression. And that couldn't be fixed given this broader structure I'm describing. All right. Let me bring in then into the conversation um, Nolene Hreeling, who is um, the Impact Catalyst Head of Department um, in Social Development and Communications. Nolene, good morning to you. Your contribution to this conversation, how do you view public-private partnerships? What are the opportunities you believe that such partnerships create? Thanks, Kathy. Yes, so it can create uh, various opportunities, and I want to also agree with the part that um, it also could be an opportunity for corruption. But I think if it's structured well, and we are at Impact Catalyst use the collaborative regional development approach, where we give the opportunity for private sector and not just the large companies. Um, community and the governmental 
departments and institutions to work together in order to create alternative economies and development in the areas that they operate in. And I think it's also important, like you say, to identify those smaller partners that can make the difference. Uh, so I think for me, the, the focus should be not just on creating a partnership with large entities, but bringing in and capacitating the people that can create a difference and make a difference and create opportunity in the smaller regions. So, yeah, no, very interesting. And, 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 and when you think about um, what Professor Bond has said, who, you know, he effectively says that if we look at the track record of these partnerships over a longer term period, what becomes clear is that there actually isn't necessarily a coming together for the public good. There is instead a plundering of resources taking place. Absolutely. So at Impact Catalyst, we really focus uh, not on a needs-based approach because I think the needs-based approach provides the opportunity for plundering. We work on an asset-based or a capital-based approach, meaning that we really look at what is there, what so developing from within uh, for the people, by the people, um, pretty much. All right, Nolene, no, no, yeah. no, ap apologies to do this to you. Sorry for interjecting. I'm going to give you a chance to, to continue with what you're saying in a moment. We, we have a break coming up, but I also want you just to unpack the, the, what the different approaches mean because uh, you spoke about a needs-based approach. Uh, please, I, I need you to explain what is a needs-based approach so that we all are moving from um, the same page. We'll continue the conversation in a moment. The Talking Point with Kathy Mosasana. Weekdays, 9 a.m. till midday. We continue the conversation on The Talking Point. We're looking at uh, public-private partnerships and what really is the track record of these partnerships. Do they work? Do they work? And I think um, an important aspect that Professor Bond has brought in is the question of who is really benefiting. Um, is it serving the public interest? Is it serving the public good? Or really, are these private players sometimes making more out of these partnerships than um, the than the actual people who these partnerships are meant to serve. So, Nolene, you you were speaking to us about uh, you respond you were responding specifically to this question of of plunder, and and you were giving examples of of what you believe has worked when it comes to public private partnerships. Absolutely, thanks, Kathy. So, just to uh, quickly um, give you a overview of what the needs-based approach is and that is really when we think from the outside that we know what will work in a certain region or a community and we impose the projects on them and uh, when that project falls out it falls, out, falls flat because there's no ownership taken um, because it's not in line with what the community assets is and um, if I talk about assets, it's not just the, uh, the physical assets, but with the asset-based approach, we really spend time and time is the key word. I think a lot of these projects and initiatives do not spend enough time in the communities and in the regions that they want to implement something. 
So we went, we spent time to understand the reality and identify the skills, knowledge, the network, the opportunities that are present in the community. And the assets are, could be social assets, the economic assets, the environmental assets, as well as the infrastructural assets. And then also, who from the community, who from that region can take ownership and, and really spearhead these opportunities? Because that provides the, the opportunity for the community or for the beneficiaries that we are doing these things for can take ownership. And when we pull out as a program or initiative, because we must be realistic, uh, companies cannot provide money indefinitely. So when that uh, program pulls out, it is still sustainable because it is run by the community or the beneficiaries themselves. So it's really important to empower your beneficiaries through the public-private mm. partnership and involve the, the, the governmental stakeholders, the municipalities, in order for them to also drive and take ownership. So I think the key word is time as well as empowering. Mm. Professor Bond, what Nolene is talking about, I think is also important for us to touch on because it, it's a question of capital, right? That when you have these partnerships, who is actually putting money um, into these partnerships and does does that also have an impact on ultimately how we then assess benefit and who has benefited the most oh yes that's so uh, correct because the uh, tradition of opaque business dealings of uh, not being particularly transparent about uh, where the money goes is notorious here in fact you remember in february we were put on the so-called gray list from the Financial Action Task Force. That's some of the major international financial regulatory bodies, like the International Monetary Fund, the Bank for International Settlements. This wasn't politics or you know Lady R controversy. This was because our Treasury and our Reserve Bank, two regulators of where the money flows, were asleep at the wheel. I don't think there's any question. They've really had to work hard. We heard from Finance Minister Enoch Karanguana yesterday about some of the curing of those uh, problems in, in financial action task force gray listing. But I think it does reflect that we aren't here talking about small procurements or uh, B deals or, you know, the mates of the, the, uh, uh, the politicians. We're talking now about the big banks. And I can assure you from having looked very carefully at the, uh, the uh, prosecution of some of the bankers, we're talking really about white bankers. Uh, you can look at the list of the uh, 17 banks that were being prosecuted in the US, not here, for manipulating the RAND. And all of those traders, with one or two exceptions, uh, there were about 40 of them, were white names. You can't always tell. But look, the point is, we are really in a pandemic of white corporate corruption. And that's why, Nolene, can I beg you, how do you actually get transparency when we have such a culture of criminality by you know people of your and my uh, skin color, right? This is a real dilemma. They profited from the crime against humanity, apartheid, uh, and their profits went through the roof as they were allowed to escape, moving corporate headquarters, especially to London. And now they think they can get away with anything. So I think the PPP, when it's with some of these big boys, really is going to necessarily become part of the plundering problem. Does, does it color it different when we look at it from 
what Nolene was saying, where, you know, from her perspective, she's not talking about the millions and millions and millions of rand. She's talking about smaller scale transactions, smaller scale partnerships um, that are quite targeted in, in communities because those two are public-private partnerships. Sure, but the problem then is a bigger one, even than uh, the corruption by largely the Santon corporates that I have been, you know, sort of going on about because I don't think we do go on enough about white corporate uh, malfeasance rated number one by PwC in the world. So, yes, let's think of the potentials for PPPs to be properly regulated in the public interest and the environmental interest. And it is actually very hard. I would much rather see all the efforts going into uh, the PPP design, the implementation, the uh, evaluation, all of the monitoring. Uh, if that effort and energy was put into rebuilding our state, the insourcing strategy. And there I would have a much stronger commitment to two other diff you know, different PPPs. One is public-public partnerships. A good example being how Rand Water helped uh, a few of the municipalities survive when they were under pressure. Odi was one of the uh, best known of these. Another would be the public-people partnerships in which the state actually does what when we were authoring the reconstruction and development program with thousands of inputs, we really felt community and uh, labor and environmental and, you know, middle class residents associations and environmental, all the kind of, you know, lobby groups really could play a much bigger role if they had the, let's say, direct citizen relationship to to uh, to the state. And there's a public people partnership that could um, save so much money. Now, your obvious reaction is, well, the PPP brings capital, private capital to the to the party. And then I'd ask, well, what is the cost of that? Usually a PPP contract confirms 30% in foreign currency terms as our RAND declines. And you actually have to have a 40 or 50% rate of return. And that's a very high rate. I mean, the private sector will say, sure, but that's our risk adjustment. South Africa is a risky place. We have a we have a you know 11% interest rate, third highest, fourth highest in the world uh, amongst those countries that issue bonds. So we are a risky country. So we're going to have to put up our, our prices. Uh, but I would say now it's time to, to bring the state back in and uh, revive democracy and revive citizenship. Not for every single transaction. I'm, you know, working with our Johannesburg water because I live in Melville and uh, you know, the evenings, we don't have water. And so we're right. trying to figure out, okay, yeah, we had a protest at Brixton uh, uh, for the council a couple of days ago, and you could just see people from all over the yeah. city in different rates and income groups. That, to me, is where that citizenship is a, is a much better place to put our investments. All right. Professor Bond will continue the conversation in a moment. We'll also hear from Lulene after the 11.30 news headlines. Very good morning. With the news headlines, Kemudupi Mahalimele. Springbok fans gathered at the Loftus Versfeld Stadium in Tswane say they're extremely excited to witness the team pass by on an open bus as part of their victory parade. The medium-term budget policy statement has highlighted an uneasy outlook on the state of the country's economy and the sheriff in Mukopani Limpopo has attached ESCOM's assets worth over 7 million rand following a successful lawsuit that a family of a minor lodged after the child was electrocuted. Details of these and other stories midday. Call us on 86 
All right, we continue the conversation on the talking point. We're looking at public-private partnerships. Do they work? Who do they actually benefit? And really, we're speaking about this conversation very, very broadly. Um, our guest for this hour, Professor Patrick Bond, a distinguished professor of sociology at the University of Johannesburg. We're also joined by Nolene Hreling, who is with Impact Catalyst and is the head of Department for Social Development and communications. Nolene, I want to give you a chance just to um, respond to some of the issues that um, Professor Bond may have raised before I go to the phone line and take uh, some of the contributions from our listeners. Thanks, Kathy. Yes, and I want to say, I think we need to get the basics right. We need to go back to the basics. And we need to be able to take people along the journey. In order to create that transparency, they need to be part of it. We cannot uh, include uh, communities and beneficiaries at the end. Uh, we cannot include the role players, the key role players that need to be part of such a partnership only at certain phases. So I think in order to create that transparency, we really need to take people along the journey. And then um, Professor Bond spoke about M&E. Monitoring and evaluation is really important in order to make sure that we are doing what we said we're going to do and we are creating that impact. But how many times has that faded? The M&E has faded and while a new, the new big thing has been concentrated on. So I think uh, a lot more emphasis should be made on M&E and really following up on, on the impact that was projected. Thanks, Cathy. All right, thanks for that. Aisha, you're in Uppington. Hello, Aisha. Morning, Cathy. Pro, uh, Professor Bond, you, I love you, man. You're on point. I couldn't agree with you more. Um, let me, uh, what's your other guest name, Cathy? Nolene. Nolene. Her name is Nolene Aisha. Yes. Nolene, this is for you. Uh, it shouldn't be since you guys are going to do this anyway. So let me just help you so that you don't make a complete balls up. Um, communities must be involved from the conceptualization to the design to the implementation. However, you are going to have a problem because we on data sovereignty. So when it comes to the monitoring and the evaluation, we are not prepared to share our data with you. So how are you going to deal with that? And Professor Bond is correct and there's a file at the government that is 10 years old, where the government funded the farmers to uplift the farm workers, and, and, and they didn't do that, and they took all the money. There's an organization that did an entire report on that. So Bond is right. I don't know how you're going to make this work. Thank you, Cathy. All right, all right. Thanks for that, Aisha. I'll give our guests an opportunity to respond shortly. Uh, Janusz in Cape Town. Good morning, Janusz. Good morning, Kathy. Uh, we're talking about the community involvement uh, you know, in, in the project. We know about this industrial mafia where the 30% of the project 
has to be allocated to the community. And in many cases, mm. this, this, the money goes nowhere and nothing is done. So this is the problem. Second problem is, okay, the professor talking about this big cooperation, and I don't have that much knowledge about it, but what I know as a, as a white contractor, that the government actually not creating the, the proper environment for the, uh, for the small and medium business. You ask about it in what, and the money involved. So who will, Katie, who, who will in, input your, his money or her money in the business when, when for instance, you are forced to give the, uh, to give the employment to, to 51% of, or let's say, of black, black I'm not racist, but to the black people who are not educated, they will tell you, so you educate them, you train them. You know, this is not, doesn't work in a private company, private environment. So it should be, it should be, should be done this way. We lost many of white people, about two million of them, who could contribute to the taxes and employment as well. They're gone. They're gone. So, so what is the solution? The government actually creating this, this problem by, the, by the forcing us to, to, to do things which we shouldn't. We should be concentrating on the jobs, on the, on the business, and, and, and the taxpayers' money who, who's supposed to support the, all, the, all, the, all the other people. We've got the 7.5 right. million of taxpayers, the 23 million of people who are uh, related, and who are waiting for the donation from the government. But it's not, all, not right. all right, Janusz. All right, thanks for that contribution. Brian in Cape Town, good morning. Good morning to you and your guests. Cathy, uh, one problem that I have is with these private companies, so-called private companies. Um, the SAA partner, I forgot the name of this company, but what the Takaso. government, Takaso, eh? uh, what the uh, province Gordon uh, and company to those, they don't let us know who these individuals are. And I suspect that this is also a BEE company, but the names of these directors are never mentioned. And the same with the Jagas Fontaine Dam that burst. They don't mm. tell you who these individuals are, because th mm. this is a red flag. There's always problems with these um, private, so-called private companies. They're in cahoots with government. And... Um, so that must be, we want to know who the, the BEE partners are. It, I suspect that these are the repeat recipients. And um, right. so um, that, that I would like you, if it's possible, I don't know, I'm trying to get old, I'm trying to get the names of the partners of the SAA, partners of the, 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 the company involved there, but I don't, uh, I'm not able to, and I mean, seeing that there was so much corruption with SAA, Dudumeheni, and company, and um, so this needs to be exposed. We need to see who these corrupt individuals are. Okay. All right, Brian. Thanks for that view, Brian, out in Cape Town. So we're edging towards the end of our show. I'm going to give our guests an opportunity to respond. Um, Nolene, you can go first. Uh, you're responding just to the questions that you've been asked and also um, to some of the issues raised by our listeners more broadly. Thank you very much, Cathy. And Aisha, I want to agree with you. Um, we need to really take 
the beneficiaries or the people that we are doing these projects along the journey from conceptualization and uh, that is exactly what the asset-based approach is all about and um, but we need to I, I want to really uh, urge the, the listeners to really participate in if there are any stakeholder engagement opportunities I know sometimes there's a uh, a little bit of a stakeholder engagement fatigue also because of in, in certain areas where there's a lot happening. But please um, participate so that we can, so that the, the processes can include the people's voices. Because if people do not participate in things, we cannot hear what they are saying. So um, thank you very much for the opportunity and we need to collaborate and we really need to, to pull together in order to develop and to create alternative economies for the change that is happening in South Africa, especially with the energy change, in order to create that alternative economies, in order to create a sustainable communities for South Africa. Thanks, Kathy. All right. Thanks, Nolin. Professor Bond? Yes, I think for your last caller, who was interested in uh, Tsukatsu, the partner, 51% of uh, SAA, uh, and whether that's really going to get off the ground. The owner, 80% of that a consortium is called Harith, H-A-R-I-T-H, and their website, Harith.Africa. So you can go there and find the principles. I'd be worried about a former deputy minister of finance and chair of the Development Bank of Southern Africa named Jabu Malaketi, if that is indeed one of the dilemmas, which is cronyism. But I think the biggest dilemma is how do we turn PPPs that could be plundering into PPPs that are public people partnerships. And maybe I could end by just reminding everyone the best of these was when the Treatment Action Campaign, an advocacy group of people living with HIV led by uh, Zaki Ahmad, Bouya Sekadibula, they said to a president, Tabu Mbeki, who was an AIDS denialist, we really need the state to take over. And no more of these big private sector, big pharma corps from the US giving us very expensive 150,000 Rand per year. AIDS drugs cocktails, and we need them generic and locally produced. And the power was sufficient that even Mbeki was overthrown. President Mandela uh, at the time in the early 2000s said, no, I, I endorse this. And as a result of that PPP, public people partnership with the state, with generic provision, not branded from big pharma from the US, but generics made locally through the state, we got the life expectancy from 52 at the low point in 2005 up to 65 just before COVID. That's the sort of outcome I think everyone would agree we need to see much more of. And when our students taught us this, we need to insource our low paid labor and get them to be better employees and have decent lives with a living wage. That was a real step forward. I hope the rest of the state will learn from these two examples. All right. Professor Patrick Bond, thank you so much for um, your insights to this conversation. Well, that's where we wrap it up on the talking point for, for today. I think Lucky in Pretoria East, let me quickly read your message. It says, um, I think Professor Bond is correct from a sociology point of view, but PPPs are best understood from a project management point of view. The BOT, which is the Build, Operate and Transfer model, works very well as the cheapest way of funding bigger projects. So that's just one view coming through there. All right, as always, it's been a pleasure being in conversation with you on The Talking Point. We're back with you again tomorrow. 
the conversation parade continues because tomorrow we'll be coming to you from Durban, from the richest square mile to perhaps the one with the most beautiful view, right? It's the one thing that <laughs> is the one thing that Santon can't give you a view of the ocean. Uh, so we'll be coming to you live from Durban tomorrow. Have a lovely afternoon. Up next is the book reading followed by the update at noon.